John 16. We'll stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when the He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. Thus far the Word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are gathered before you at your call and command. We come because you have given us affection in our hearts for our glorious God through the working of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come to sit under your word, to hear your word. Lord, bless us to have attentive ears. Father, we are all frail. We are all sinners and we are needing of your grace and your spirit that that which men deem foolish, the preaching of the word, would be profitable and exalt your name, that you would be glorified even through the weakness of preaching according to men. Lord, bless your word, bless our hearing and our understanding, and above all, may Christ be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Last week, we, we heard of the necessity of Jesus' departure. And then we heard about the Holy Spirit's work in the world that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There are times when the convicting work of the Spirit results in the sinner being saved out of the world and brought then into the church. This week our focus will be on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Thus the second sermon on the work of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with the author J.I. Packer. You know, if I ask for a show of hands, I won't. Um, have you read J.I. Packer? Many of you, particularly adults, would say that you have. Indeed, uh, Dr. Packer, through his books, played a significant role in, in my life early on as I was becoming uh, more reformed and a greater understanding of biblical truths. Uh, he had tried to, quite an impact on my spiritual development in those earlier years. As we're considering the work of the Holy Spirit, I find that what Dr. Packer wrote in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, several decades ago to be very relevant and helpful. I'm going to quote him here. Considering the work of the Holy Spirit, he says, The essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry at this or any other time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit mediates the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain what he means by mediating Christ's presence. It is a matter of the Spirit doing whatever is necessary for creation, sustaining, deepening, and expressing our relationship in Christ. You hear from that. Dr. Packer uh, makes a very compelling statement that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ would fall upon our ears as water falls upon a rock. This mediation is for the church, those who are members in the church through their union to Christ by faith. There have been many errors invented and spread in the church about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is very important that we understand that the one who sends us the Spirit, what he has to say about the Holy Spirit, 
what he has to say about this topic of what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus does that in this text. Let us review what we, uh, what Jesus has already taught the disciples on this night so long ago. That is about the Holy Spirit. This truth is not only for them, but through the church down through the ages. First, the Holy Spirit is the promised helper or the other comforter that Jesus said he would send upon his going back to the Father. Jesus said that he would request to the Father, and the Father would send the Spirit after his departure. Second, Jesus has revealed that the Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, equal with the Father and the Son in power and in glory, and deserving of worship along with the Father and the Son. Third, the Spirit came to help the disciples recall everything. This is specific things that he said to these men. They would recall recall to them everything that they had heard from Jesus. And fourthly, that the Spirit is ever-present with believers in times of persecution to enable them, even at such times, to be witnesses. Jesus told them they'd be persecuted, and in that context, the promise of the Holy Spirit who would equip them. Last week, we looked at the fifth thing that the Spirit does, convicting the world. This morning, we want to look at the sixth thing in this text, that the Spirit was coming, indeed has now come, as we are situated, to guide the disciples into the whole of saving truth as found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our focus this morning, this sixth area, the Holy Spirit's work in the church. We can use four main headings. The Holy Spirit guides the church. There's four G's here. The Holy Spirit guides the church into all truth. The Holy Spirit gives the church the scripture. The Holy Spirit guarded the human authors of the Bible, and the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit guides, gives, guards, and glorifies. The Holy Spirit guides the church into all truth. That's where we begin. We read verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It becomes clear that the truths that Jesus uh, had, that there are truths that Jesus had not yet taught to the disciples. There's more for them to know, and therefore that the church must know. And Jesus says that there are so many things. Notice the language. I still have many things to say to, and this is the plural, y'all. And many things to say to y'all. He's talking to them and ultimately to the church, but most specifically to them. But notice Jesus says, you're not able, and again, it's the plural, y'all. Y'all are not able to bear them now. At that point, in the upper room, before the cross, the many other things that Jesus had to say to them, they were not equipped to bear. There's two reasons for that. One is the weakness of these men at this point prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit in fullness. The Holy Spirit would equip them and strengthen them in the ways that they were not yet strengthened. Secondly... And this relates to the first. They are still in that period before the cross of Christ. The cross would change everything. The cross upon which Jesus died would change everything. Bringing to fulfillment that which was promised. It would be accomplished. And then the Spirit could come in His fullness to them. We could sum it up by saying the work of Christ on the cross would usher in a new era. The era of the church, the era of the gospel, the era which the gospel message explodes going across the land to the ends of the earth, even as God had promised. And indeed, another aspect is that which had been foretold by the prophets in types and shadows and images, as, as though looking at these things through a glass darkly would then be accomplished to become very clear. 
Jesus himself will teach these men much after the resurrection. Remember, he had 40 days with them. And there's much that he would teach them. We're not told what those things were. Even as Paul, after his conversion, spent two or three, I'm not remembering exact period of time, in the desert. This man who was schooled in the Old Testament Scriptures and yet had many wrong ideas, the Holy Spirit took him to the school of Christ and taught him many things. So it was for these men in the upper room that they had 40 days with Christ. And yet, in Jesus, he promises the spirit of truth. It's been given to him to take these men, that it has been given to the Holy Spirit, to take these men, as Paul would be later, to the school of Christ, giving them in all truth. Look again at verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. This work of the spirit is not new. It is what has been going on since the beginning of time. What we have here is what theologians talk about, progressive revelation. Children, I want to help you to understand that progressive revelation, if you'll pay attention to me. Imagine your parents saying, there's a surprise coming. Next week on Saturday, there's a surprise. And you're going, what is it? What is it? Was it right? You clamor, you, you jump around, you get excited. What is this surprise? You want to know what it is? Well, maybe as the week progresses, they, they tell you a little bit more. Maybe they say something like, well, it's arriving on four wheels. You know, they, well, maybe it's my grandparents. You know, you, you start imagining. And as the week progresses, more and more is revealed. There's this progressive revelation. And no doubt you start having some ideas of what it is. And Saturday, when it arrives... With a surprise, then you know fully what the surprise is. There's the full revelation at that point. Well, that's what's happening in the scripture. Remember Genesis 3.15, where we were at, I don't remember, three years ago, four years ago. It's been a good little while. and There was this initial promise, this, this little glimpse of Christ, that the seed of the woman, he would crush the serpent's head. Now, we have the fullness of God's revelation now, and we look back at that passage, and we can understand much, and we can explain much. And indeed, it's very appropriate to do that. But for Adam and Eve, they still heard God's promise, and they believed God, and it was accounted unto them as righteousness. When God spoke then to Abraham, it was a little bit more that he would have a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And, and so it is that God began to open up and reveal more and more of what is coming. And this is what the Holy Spirit has been doing, revealing what God is doing, what God will do. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Think about even what we've seen in the book of Isaiah that we've been in uh, for as long as we've been in John's Gospel, as we've been working through them in parallel. Uh, we, we see uh, back in chapter 7 that, uh, that the woman, the virgin, would be with child. Then in chapter 9, that this child would be no ordinary child, even as from its virgin birth, that, that this child would be God himself, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I, I left out the wonderful counsel, but that this is revealed, that this is no ordinary, this is not a mere man, this is a remarkable man. Indeed, there's certainly in those prophecies indications that it is the coming of God in the flesh, even as will become more clear. If you think about the Old Testament, there's progressive revelation as God speaks to Moses and gives him instructions for building the tabernacle and all the articles of furniture in the tabernacle and the where they are ordered and, and the garments for the priest and how the priests are to be sanctified. 
All these things reveal something about God. The children of Israel wandering in the, in the wilderness when bread came down from heaven. That's a progressive revelation about Christ who is the bread of heaven, even as we heard in John 6. And all the feasts, the feasts that they were appointed for them three times, and particularly the celebration of the Passover. And that Passover lamb pointed to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. All these things we're revealing something, but there's going to be a new era. After Christ is completed, there will be something uh, you could say. I mean, it, it didn't happen, but you know, to, to, to personify it in some sense, it would it'd be as though the church could finally say, Aha! Ah! And it's because of what the Spirit is doing. And certainly we look at Paul's letters and you see that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, opening up, explaining, expositing all these glorious truths. And there's many more. Every one of these revelations were about God sending his only begotten son into the world to save sinners. And then when John the Baptist comes, the last of the Old Testament prophets, that day arrives when he sees Jesus approaching him. The spirit filling John reveals to him, this is the one. And he says with boldness and confidence, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it said something like a thunderclap for Israel. The long-expected one has come. The fulfillment has occurred. This is most remarkable. But, of course, they looked and they looked just like any other man, and they had many preconceived notions. But not yet the reality was that the Spirit, or that the, the, the Son had come, that the Christ has come. Now, there's certainly the possibility, and indeed the likelihood and the actuality, uh, that the church down through the ages has wrongly interpreted things that are in the scriptures. But Jesus declared to the church that the Holy Spirit would guide the church into all truth. We have not been left alone. We have not been left to sort things out on ourselves. The Lord God Almighty has given us the Spirit to guide us to understand the truth. And these men and others who would be appointed by God would then be the authors of the remaining books of the scripture, the New Testament as we call it. And that the church will be guided then how to rightly understand the Old Testament prophecies and indeed the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it is that Peter, through Peter, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Find that in 2 Peter 1.20. So the Holy Spirit would guide these apostles of the first century with revelation to understand the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in Christ, and to rightly record that which was Jesus' life in ministry. The Holy Spirit would even guide them to understand the events they had witnesses, the miracles, the teaching, the preaching that they had heard. So that what we have in the New Testament is a record of the events that God wanted preserved and recorded along with his explanation. Now, before we leave this point, let us notice and find comfort in what else Jesus says. He said he will guide the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. This is the promise to these men. This is the promise to those apostles of the apostolic age that they would be guided into all truth. That from that we must understand Nothing is missing that we need. 
It's an important word for the church, not just in our age, but in other times. Nothing is missing that we need. We do not need additional revelation. We should not be looking for the Holy Spirit to, to give additional words. All that is needed has been supplied. The Holy Spirit came and through these men guided them into all truth. We have the complete and the comprehensive record in the pages of Scripture. There's nothing more that God would have us to know. Now, there is more that God knows. But as the Scripture says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We have God's final and authoritative word. This is what Jesus promises concerning the Holy Spirit, that he would guide these men as he was giving them the rest of the word. So let our prayer then be that which is in Psalm 133. When we consider the things that are not revealed, the things that are not made known, let us pray like the psalmist. Lord, my heart is not haughty. My eyes are not lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor are things too profound for me. And he goes on to say, Lord, that I would be contented like a weaned child upon his mother's breast. It's a beautiful picture. Those of you who have had children that have nursed when they're nursing and then you come to the point of weaning, they're agitated and they're restless because that which they've done is no longer going to be. But then that child comes to the point where it's weaned. And once again, it rests in his mother's arms at peace. And that's how we must be concerning God's revelation, content and at peace in God's embrace through his word. Do you need guidance? Do you have questions for things in your life? We all long to have things written out clear and plain for us. But the things that God would have us to know about the grand scheme of things is written in the word. Do we need guidance for very specific things in our life? Certainly we do. God would have us to pray and read the scripture. Not just randomly breaking open the book, plopping down a finger, but systematically, consistently reading through the word of God and praying for God's will to be made known to us. For God, through providence, to direct our steps. And not be hoping for some voice from the great beyond. God has spoken all that we need to know and nothing is lacking. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives the church the Bible. Certainly this is closely related to the first. It was through these men that God would guide them to know what to write. Indeed, all three of these first points are connected and lead to the fourth point. But the Holy Spirit gives the church the Bible. Uh, This portion, this is more specifically, indeed quite specifically, a promise to those 11 men in the upper room. And then certainly Paul, who would be added to their numbers, and others who are connected to these men. We think of Mark and Luke, who are connected to them, that also wrote the scriptures as the Spirit moved them along. The scriptures speak of other things, and indeed, on every topic that the scripture speaks, it speaks without error. That's one of the great conflicts that people want to make the Bible a science book. It's not. But it does speak about scientific matters, and when it speaks, it is true. Indeed, the Scripture is unique. There is no other book like it. It alone reveals and focuses on God's redeeming work. There's no other book like it. It alone focuses upon God's redeeming work throughout history, a record of God saving sinners from the curse of sin. 
Jesus goes on to tell the disciples what thing, what kind of things, uh, what sort of topics the Spirit will be giving them as the Scriptures are given through them. And it's important that we understand what the New Testament is as well as what the New Testament is not. It is not a handbook for life. It is not a guidebook for building a successful business. It's not a book to turn to so you can have your best life now. This is not in conflict with what we have just said, though, in the previous point. The Word of God is a revelation that guides us, but it is not a handbook. Think about like the Boy Scouts handbook. Where you, you want to know how to build a fire, you look at the index and find that section, and there's the 12 steps or whatever laid out. The New Testament, the Word of God, is not like that. It's not a handbook. It's not a volume either that we can just pull off the shelf and say, well, how do I untie the knots in my relationship? I'll look that up. But understand this, the Scripture does speak to those things, relationships and conflict and resolving conflicts. But it's not a handbook. Nonetheless, it is a guide. The New Testament, then, is God's final revelation on how sinners can have salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first and primary thing. This, the God who gave it would have us to know how to come to Him, how that it is that we can be saved, and it is through His Son. So in addition to guiding the disciples, the Spirit will also give them any additional revelation so that the Word of God might be complete. So these men in the upper room, they've had experiences. The Holy Spirit will guide them and give to them what they should write about those things that they've seen and heard. Certainly there's more they could write, but they write what the Holy Spirit has guided them to write. But also, He will add to it, as we see in these three sections. We want to consider that there are three areas in which this revelation consists. History, doctrine, and prophecy. That God, through these men, gave us history, an inspired history, also doctrine and prophecy. So as we consider history, what we find in the New Testament is a record of history. We have a history of the life of our Redeemer and the apostles and the church, particularly the four gospels that records Jesus' ministry. But this is not a comprehensive biography. It is those things that the Holy Spirit guided these men to write. This is particularly true about Jesus' work. It is a record of the incarnation, his birth, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. When Jesus says in verse 14 that the Spirit will take of what is mine and declare it to, and again, it's y'all, these men as a whole, not just one of them. The meaning is that the Spirit will tell who Jesus is. He's going to take of what is mine. The Spirit will lead these men to tell and tell them who Jesus is, what He has done, so that the record that came through the apostles by the Spirit was given to them, and they wrote it. So we see our faith is historical. That's something we can take away from this. is important. Our faith, the Christian religion, the true religion that God has revealed, is it's historical. It happened in time and space. What we believe truly took place. This is unique amongst so-called religions. This one true religion, these things took place. It is a truth that we believe that Jesus' life and ministry took place on the earth at a particular time in a particular place. Therefore, it is reliable and it is trustworthy. And indeed, it is verifiable. And so our comfort 
And our only hope, our blessed hope, rests upon facts. What's recorded in this book is facts. This actual history took place just as is recorded. There's no other religion like this. The religions of the world pale in comparison. They are based on theories and ideas and fables and dreams and myths. The rambling and musings even of old men with weak minds. My dear friends, accept no substitute to the truth of God's word. Our religion is historical and it is factual. And God himself through the Holy Spirit has given it to these men that it should be recorded as it is in the word of God. Third, secondly, this that is given is doctrine. The New Testament is a book of doctrine. Yes, dogmas. The world hates dogmas. We live in a day of relativism. We're surrounded by it. It infects us. Uh, we are in danger of being overtaken by it as well, as along with many other things. But when it comes to the Word of God, it is dogmatic. It is doctrine. It is absolute. It is final. It is non-negotiable. God has spoken. You don't parley with God. God speaks and our response is yielded submission. The history of the North Testament is important, but it would do us no good if the Spirit had not provided doctrinal explanation. What does it mean? How do we apply it? How do we use it? How is it helpful? What do we learn from it? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to be the God-man? Why did he have to die on a Roman cross? What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Why is it important that Jesus rose again on the third day? On and on and go. These are all doctrinal questions. And I hope that as you hear them, and others you can imagine, you realize this is important. This is vital. This is central. And God has spoken. The Spirit gave to these men, even as he guided them along, an accurate record. So it is. They wrote not only a history, but they wrote doctrine. Theirs is a Spirit-inspired record of God's revealed truth. And again... There is no other book like it in all of history. It alone stands apart. It is the Word of God. It's interesting that we should observe that doctrine grows out of history. And indeed, these two must be joined together. Doctrine and history, history and doctrine. But thirdly, there's a third aspect of what the Spirit would give to these men as He gave them the rest of the Scriptures in the New Testament. Jesus announced this aspect of the Spirit's work in the latter part of verse 13. In the middle of the verse, For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. That's future. This is a prophecy. Things that are yet to happen that the Holy Spirit would then give to them prophecy. Not only giving them the history to record, not only the doctrine that they should write, but indeed prophecy, things that would yet to take place. Some of these prophecies were to take place in that era, in that first century. Some of that's recorded as Jesus was departing for the temple, Matthew 24, going out to the Mount of Olives. And he had announced many things. They want to know, oh, when will these things take place? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. They want to know when to take place. And he speaks to those things. There's other passages that speaks to his prophecies of things that were fulfilled in their day. Indeed, in 70 AD, those events begin to unfold, and some of those men would have been present. And the church was informed by having that prophecy, 
in the prophecy that Jesus gave to them, that when they saw the abomination of the desolation approaching, that they should flee. If you're in the field, leave your cloak at the side of the field. Flee. If you're on the rooftop, come down. Don't go back into the house to gather things. Flee. Because destruction was coming upon Jerusalem. And those who heeded the warning that Christ gave, they escaped the danger and the destruction that fell upon Jerusalem and on the nation of the Jews. It is John in particular that is given uh, by the Spirit a prophecy of things that are yet to come. We go to the book of Revelation. There are portions of it are things that are yet to happen. Part of it is things that were about to happen, speaking of 70 A.D., because it opens the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified by his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to the things that he saw. So John writes this revelation. It's interesting to know it was given to him on the Lord's Day. For he says later on in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. John was worshiping when the spirit, through prophecy, fulfillment of what Jesus said, he will show you things that are yet to come was given the revelation. So Jesus taught the disciples that evening that the Spirit would give them the rest of God's revelation. The fullness of the Word of God would be completed. This was the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and for the church. How often do you celebrate the Word of God? Are you grateful that you have the Word of God? You know, it wasn't that many centuries ago that Christians like ourselves Uh, Our access to the Word of God would have been going to the gathering of God's people. And even then, it would have been limited because many times it was read in Latin, and they, they didn't understand Latin. They didn't have access to the Word of God. My brothers and sisters, most of us have multiple copies of the Scriptures in our home, in our tongue, and we know how to read. Do we esteem these things? Are we grateful for them? That we have God's revelation to us, to the church. Do we value that which God has given it? Would we notice it if it was missing from our lives? I remember reading the account of a woman who was hired as a nanny. And on her first day of employment, she went through the house and gathered up the Bibles and hid them. She'd been told this was a Christian home, and she was just curious. How important was the Word of God to them? And she waited for somebody to say, where's my Bible? What have you done with it? Well, that would tell her something. You know, if it was that very same day, that would be an encouraging thing for this Christian woman who was a nanny. A week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by. Nobody's asking, where's my Bible? What would it be like in your home? How often do we turn to the revelation of our God who has given us a history, who has given us doctrine, and has given us prophecy? Let us be like the psalmist who can sing and say, Oh, how I love thy law, O Lord. I meditate on it day and night. Certainly we can do that with what we memorize, but we have it to whom much is given, much is required. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit guides and gives. The Holy Spirit also guarded the human authors. And again, this is very specific for these men, although there is an application for us as well. The Holy Spirit was God's appointed agent to guide the apostles as he was giving them the word of God. As the one who would guide them, he also guarded them specifically. These men would be entrusted one of the greatest and highest responsibilities in all of history. Have you ever thought about that? To be an inspired author, that the spirit of the living God would come along and move along to write the very word of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. These men, the spirit would come upon them. What a glorious 
responsibility and what a weighty one. So as these men you know, realize what Jesus is saying to them, no doubt after the resurrection, no doubt after the ascension, they could remember these words and find comfort in them that the Holy Spirit would guard them as these human authors. It would be a great comfort to know that they were not on their own. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit here in a specific way. He is the Spirit of Truth. It's easy just to trot that out. I'm using the Spirit of Truth. Yeah, okay, that's great. But what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. Well, the Spirit loves the truth. The Holy Spirit has a perfect knowledge of the truth. And He was appointed to communicate that truth to the apostles. And it was necessary. It was necessary for the Holy Spirit to guard these men. Even as it was necessary that He would guide them and give them to them, He must guard them as they wrote the truth, that which was entrusted to them, for they were but human authors, prone to all our faults, failures, and weaknesses. And so there was something supernatural at work as the Holy Spirit guarded them. He guarded them in their labors. He guarded them along the way so that there would be no error in what they wrote. Isn't it remarkable the Word of God, you know, written by multiple men over many centuries, even millennium, and yet there's this beautiful unity There's this glorious cohesiveness. There's this majestic picture that is set before us because it's not from the imagination of men. It comes straight from the throne of God, condescending to give his word unto men. And that is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, not only with these men, but even back through the ages, beginning with Moses, down through the ages and the prophets, even unto the apostles. You think of this idea of guarding them. In some sense, these men were setting out for a destination. That destination would be the completion of God's given and written word. They were mere men, and they needed a divine guard and guide for the, so that the whole enterprise would arrive at its completion. Some of you can remember traveling when the days before GPS, uh, back when uh, somebody in the car would have the Rad McNally or some other map laid out on the lap and you know, if you're like me, I, I looked at that thing in advance and I knew where I was going. I kind of had the whole route memorized. But nonetheless, as we'd be driving along, my wife would be there and I would verify uh, that what I was thinking. It was she was guarding me as we went along that we would arrive at our destination. You think of that in the same way. The destination is the rest of the revelation of God would be given. And the Holy Spirit was going to guard these men so that they arrived at that destination. And indeed, it's a reality. That's the good news. We have the Word of God without error, without fault, comprehensive. God the Father has spoken the Word, and the Holy Spirit communicated that Word to holy men set apart for that, to write down without error the outbreathed Word of God, uh, the idea of the inspiration, the exhalation of God by the Spirit to these men. That's never happened again. This has never occurred in any other way. So when you hear somebody say, looking at a piece of art or hear a piece of music or something, say, oh, that, that seems to be inspired. Understand this. That is not the same sense. Only the Word of God is God breathed out. It's dishonoring then. I'm, I'm going to address an issue here in the church abroad. It is dishonoring to the Holy Spirit then when people come along claiming to have a word of knowledge or a message from God, the Spirit spoke to me. It dishonors the Holy Spirit. There's no way 
to justify such declarations. The text before us condemns all people who come along making such claims. Look again. I'm going to go from 13, 14, and 15, pulling out the same theme. It's reiterated three times. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. Verse 14, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you all. And in verse 15, in all the things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit does not operate independently. What the Holy Spirit has revealed to the church is from the Father, given to Christ, and sent forth to the church by the Spirit. There's no other place. There's no other room for some other words from the Spirit of God. It's remarkable. I don't know that I really thought about this. I mean, in a sense I had, but just to see this so clearly, there is nothing that the Holy Spirit gave to the church that originated with Him. It originated with the Father, who He gave it to the Son, who gave it to the church. The Spirit takes of what is mine, Jesus says, and He will give it to you. The Spirit, then, never had a novel thought. Nothing new. Nothing original. What does that say to the charismatics and and their... I don't mean to disrespect, but we need to be clear about this. Their blather. Nothing new. Nothing original in the Holy Spirit. Everything that the Holy Spirit has, He gave, and He gave it from the Father through the Son to the church. And there's nothing more. Let's look and see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. This speaks to this issue. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. This is a familiar passage. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You see, this what the Spirit is revealing, it, it comes from God. He, being one with God, a part of the Godhead, searches the things of God. Here God would be the Father that is a particular person. He searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit except the Spirit of God. Paul teaches something here as an aside, an important aside, that we all forget and we end up impugning one another's motives. Have you ever said to somebody, well, I know why you did that. I know what you're thinking. You don't. We don't know what's inside of another man. That's, that's what Paul said. You, you, you need to understand. You need to be able to search their inner being, and we cannot do that. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he knows the mind of God. And that's a great comfort. We remember when we were Romans and we, we were talking about the groanings of the Holy Spirit who knows the will of God and knows what is in our heart but dwelling with us, then our groanings through the Holy Spirit communicate to God when we're not even able to articulate or to put into words ourselves. This is a remarkable work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is. It's disrespectful to claim to have a word from the Spirit because the Spirit has no words but what the Father had in the first place. The Spirit then, being one with God, 
and with the Father, can search the mind of God and reveal it. So what he reveals originates with God. Now, lest we slip into some heresy, these things are revealed to us as the working of God with men in the process of revelation and redemption. You will remember that I've used the phrase, so we look at the, the Trinity largely from the perspective of the economic that is the functional working of the, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, as they are carrying out their work of redemption. There's uniqueness. Thus we find Jesus declaring that I only do the will of the Father. He declares this submission and yieldness to the Father. But that is not an eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory. But when it comes to the work of redemption, Jesus submitted to the Father. And he came under the, in the flesh to redeem a people. And he humbled himself. Therefore, God has given him a name above all names. And even so, the Spirit knows the mind of the Father. But when it comes to our relationship to the Godhead, God is explaining how they carried out their work for men. And so it is that the Spirit is said to search God's mind and reveal to us. And thus, Jesus even says in our text that what he has is mine. He says that as... Christ and what the Father has given to him as the Son that he looks and he declares to the church. Well, how does that apply to us today? Well, first, we can have, have absolute confidence in the Word of God. The Spirit was sent forth into the church to guide these men and to give to them the Word of God, that which they should write, and to guard them along the way. Even so, for us, we can have a confidence that the Spirit will guard us from error. That is not to say that we will never err in our, in our understanding. I think actually we will never err uh, in our understanding. But that we can pray and ask the Spirit to guard us from error. When we sit down to read the Bible, Holy Spirit, lead me into all truth. Give me eyes and ears. Help me to understand. Protect me from, from wrong conclusions, from error in my understanding. Teach me. Guide me and guard me as the Spirit of Christ in me. But fourthly, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. Let's return back to verse 14 again. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, by the Spirit, in a sense, yielded to the, to the Christ, to the Son of God. He takes of what is mine. And he gives it to you this. And in doing that, what Christ has has been given to him by the Father, that he would be exalted before the eyes of men. And the Spirit then, working his work, takes of what is Christ, and he gives it to the church so that Christ will be glorified. And what you see is that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all are working, that Christ would be preeminent all in all. Thus Paul writes, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Would we know God? We look to Christ. He is the revelation of God to the church. And the Spirit is at work to make these things known to us. The Spirit would have us glorify Christ. Jesus tells these men that he's called to follow him. And is now preparing them to lead the church after his ascension. That the Spirit that he gives them has a focus. And the focus of the Spirit is the glory of the Son of God. And indeed, if that's the focus of the Spirit, that should be the focus of the church. We should do all things for the glory of God. So if we would be faithful as the church, we don't look to the world. We don't look to the culture. We don't take our cues from men. 
We look to the word of God. We look to what the Father has revealed in his Son and given through the Holy Spirit. That is our only standard. The only rule for faith and practice. The various movements that are around us in the world, they come and they go. The fads pass away. As Oz Guinness says, that he who marries himself to the spirit of the age will soon find himself a widower. And yet the church continues to hitch its cart to whatever horse the world is driving. We're always three steps behind, whereas God has called us to be out front, leading with the word of God, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ by proclaiming him and him crucified, the only hope of glory. For in Christ alone is salvation found. And the Holy Spirit is at work that this is what we would be about. The Father has exalted the Son. We go back to Paul's glorious, I think it's the most Christological passage in all of Scripture, Psalm, I mean, Philippians 2, where Paul is actually talking about an attitude, humility that we should have. Let the same mind be in you that was Christ Jesus. Though being God, he did not grasp at that, but he took himself to the form of a servant. The lowest of slaves is the word there. And he suffered death on the cross. He humbled himself before God and the world, before the angels, even the fallen angels. There he hung in humiliation for our sake. Therefore, God the Father has given him a name which is above every name. So that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Both on earth and under the earth, in the heavens, in all the realms. That we should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and glorify him. If the Father would glorify the Son. And if the Spirit would glorify the Son. Then surely we the church must glorify the Son. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, our God. Would you bless that which we have heard to our understanding, that we take it up and apply it, that we meditate upon it, mull it over, Lord, where we need reformation in our lives, that you would bring it by your spirit, that indeed we would learn to glorify Christ and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.